You're listening to Labor Wave Radio in collaboration with the organizing work podcast, Wobcast. Laborwave Radio is an independent podcast that's sustained by our listeners through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. If you enjoy the show, please become a subscriber. It really helps out. What you're about to listen to is a fun conversation between myself and Marion Garneau, the editor of Organizing Work, interviewing Joe Burns about his forthcoming title from Haymarket Books, Class Struggle Unionism. Just to make listeners aware, Labor Wave Radio is going to be taking a brief hiatus from producing new content. So this is going to be the last episode you hear for probably a couple of months. I'm going to still be continuing to gather interviews and content, and and I have things on the back burner that just need to be edited and put out. But at the moment, I cannot continue putting all the attention and time into the podcast that I have been. But the reason I'm deciding to do this hiatus now is because the episode you are about to listen to is outstanding. So it's a really great way to go out into the new year, take a quick break. I'm going to recharge Labor Wave Radio and we'll come back with some really good episodes. But until then, you got this great one with Joe Burns to enjoy. Uh, Joe, you're the guest of honor. And that means that you're also going to get picked on, I guess, a lot, where a lot of questions are going to come your way. But probably the first question that we should start with is, you know, you penned this recent book, Class Struggle Unionism. It's coming out on Haymarket Books in February, I believe. But I think a working definition is in order. So when you say class struggle unionism, what do you really mean by that concept and that expression? You know, I wrote this book, Class Struggle Unionism, because, you know, it's my belief that for the, you know, first, you know, hundred some years of uh, trade unionism in America, you know, sort of the main competitor to business unionism was what was called class struggle unionism, or can be defined as class struggle unionism. And the difference between business unionism and class struggle unionism is fairly simple. The business unionists, and we can go more into their features and details, uh, you know, later, but the business unionists uh, see themselves as having a fairly limited role in representing workers at a particular plant or industry against particular employers and generally have, you know, sort of a limited vision of seeking, you know, a fair day's wage for a fair day's work was their best slogan to describe their approach. The class struggle unionists, on the other hand, and we can look at historical examples like the, you know, the historical industrial workers of the world, which flourished in the 19. Tens, the you know sort of the young communist party in the 1920s you know formed these sort of dissident or dual unions uh that that were pretty radical in the 1930s a whole variety of folks who came out of different you know sort of uh backgrounds socialist or other backgrounds helped build the upsurges and more recently in the 1970s Thousands of, you know, activists uh, coming out of the civil rights and the student and anti-war women's movements, you know, became radicalized and then entered the workforces with the real vision of class struggle unionism. 
Um, but to go back to class struggle unionism, I think the, you know, as opposed to the business unionism who says uh, a fair day's wage for a fair day's work, class struggle unionist raises the slogan, labor creates all wealth. And that's really the essence of the of the unionism. And then from there flows a whole set of ideas that stem from that simple proposition and that simple difference. Much of what you're taking aim at in the book is labor liberalism. And I my favorite is when you get fiery and critical. So can you can you give us a rant about because labor liberalism is the more recent phenomenon that you're talking about that has become kind of hegemonic now. So can you just give us a rant about what labor liberalism is and why it's terrible? Yeah, yeah, I can. And I actually I softened the book a lot because I had all these little zingers and people helped me out and made it a little softer. So because I had all these really good little lines. I kept a few of them. You can use them now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look at I started doing union work in the 80s, you know, and we still had like a lot of the leftists from the 70s around and, and you know, they, they, they had kind of imploded, but there were still some, a lot of unionists around who were like local leaders or had solidarity groups in cities. And, you know, there was a real divide between when I was starting out, you know, folks, there were these rank and file rebellions where they were trying to fight concessions and they were trying to fight against the you know, their national unions would come in and sell them out. And then and then there was a whole trend within the labor movement, which was like no concessions and that we need more militancy and so forth. But then what happened is in the early 90s, you know, because, you know, we did that, but it didn't go far enough, you know, in terms of, you know, there were efforts to try and stop production, but, you know, it didn't go quite far enough. So you so what you have is this whole layer that arises within the you know, sort of labor staffers and bureaucracy. And these are people who, you know, might have been one, I talked about students who went into the labor movement in the 70s. You know, they didn't stay in the factories, all of them, some of them became um, union staffers or got elected. And they charted this whole new course. And I thought it was bullshit at the time. You know, I, I was not a fan, although a lot of people got swept up in it. And they said, no, we're going to be, we're smarter than all the, all of this, you know, we've got a different way. So they started doing these one day strikes and they had these corporate campaigns and then all this stuff. They reoriented the labor movement away from fighting the boss to like that they were going to do NLRB elections and spent billions, literally billions of dollars on it. So for the last 20 years and they abandoned the strike, you know, those are the people who abandoned the strike. You know, so for the last 20 years, we've been telling, so so what I call them, they, in the 90s, they went by this term, they call themselves kind of the organizing approach, and and then they kind of morphed into social unionism. Every time their ideas don't work out, they just kind of reinvent themselves as a, like a new idea. So they go from organizing approach to, uh, you know, social unionism, then they go to alt unionism, then they go to bargaining for the common good, and they never take you know, responsibility for the fact that their ideas suck and that they haven't really hit on the key points about how do we rebuild union power. And during this time, they gain influence in the labor movement, but we're going down, 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 down. You know, we're, our, our, our share of the workforce that is organized is going down. But they're very, like, they come out of, like, the left progressive movements. A lot of them are staffers. They think they're like all, you know, radical, you know, um, because they talk in sort of lefty speak because that's what they come out of. But essentially, you know, a lot of the unions they form 
end up being, you know, more undemocratic than even some of these business unions. They form these worker centers, which, you know, I mean, have their pros and cons, but at the end of the day, they don't have elected boards. I mean, that, you know, even the most undemocratic worker or union is more democratic than these worker centers, which are self-selected boards, you know, and they're funded by foundations. They're not even funded by workers, but they have this sort of, you know, sort of holier and thou attitude. I'm not saying all worker centers are bad, but they, but a lot of them have this, uh, <laughs> um, you know, sort of attitude about the rest of the of the labor movement, and they adopt a whole set of practices, which are really, to me, kind of they're they're not trade unions. You know, a lot of them are really, you know, you get the whole fight for 15 develops, and you know, on the one hand, they seem like they're militant, so they gravitate people around to them at least earlier, and everyone thinks, oh shit, they're great, you know, but. They weren't doing real strikes. They were doing these fake strikes that they would use. And I guess the biggest part about it is they weren't really doing it for like trade unionism or unionism or organizing the workers. They're really oriented towards the sort of progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And they're looking to pass legislation. And what they've discovered is that workers have incredible power. And if they're able to kind of capture a little bit and use those strikes, they get all this publicity and really were able to get some gains in terms of raising the minimum wage and so forth through that, which is fine and it's good. But at the end of the day, it's not really about organizing workers, which is what we really need. Anyway, I don't know if I got enough zingers in there, but that's really where they come from. Well, talking about labor liberals and their practices, something that kind of came to my mind when I was reading your book and your analysis of labor liberals, I wonder if you agree with this, it's, it seems like they kind of emerged in reaction and response to very restrictive labor laws. But rather than viewing labor law as a prime arena that needs to be struggled over, as you point out a lot, we need to be able to violate labor law in order to build class struggle unionism. It seems like labor liberals have basically just tried to figure out how do we fit into the existing framework of labor relations? Do you, do you think that's correct? Is this where the labor liberalism emerged in its practices? Yeah, I mean, I really, like in my book, Reviving the Strike, you know, I wrote the first book and I didn't really kind of think of them this way as as much at the time, but I wrote it because they had basically abandoned the open-ended strike, um, which was the key tool of labor. And rather than like say that the system is, is screwed up and we need to challenge the system, they saw themselves as the master strategists who could kind of win within the system. And they gained a lot of influence within the labor movement because of that, you know, because labor in general, you know, didn't, you know, the business unionists didn't really want to, you know, violate the law or really challenge the whole system. And, you know, so their form of striking didn't work and they just quit striking. But on the other hand, you know, these folks offered like a different way. So you get Ray Rogers and you get the corporate campaign developing, you know, that's that's like, okay. We can win without shutting down production because we'll go, you know, target people on the board of directors and so forth. Or we can do, we won't do an open-ended strike. We'll do a 24-hour strike, you know, and, and, we, and we can do that. But they're all pale imitations of the, of the real tactics, you know. And ultimately, they're able to get limited gains for workers. And, you know, they're better than doing nothing, a lot of them but they're all fighting within the system. That's why I used to call them labor pragmatists, you know, which wasn't, I don't think it kind of quite like labor, hopefully labor liberals will, but I think labor liberals hits more at their sort of 
you know, not just at the tactical question, but also like their ideology and where they're really coming from. I think that's a really good point that it was the constraining of the labor movement that made the labor liberals come to power because by then you had this whole infrastructure of you know strikes being constrained union leadership being intimidated by all the different ways in which unions were disempowered and so here you have these charlatans who come along saying don't worry we can win without actually raising any ruckus without actually taking anybody out on strike i mean that's i think that's a really interesting historical point that that's what opened the door to labor liberalism the question I want to ask is, where do strikes come from? Because let's say there's general agreement in this room that we cannot possibly forget this most powerful economic weapon that workers have that really deploys their social power. So to me, the question is, where do strikes come from then? How do we make them happen? That's a good question, because and it kind of ties into a bigger thing, you know, I, I think for a while, a lot of people and probably people outside the labor movement probably thought like the organizers or the staff organizers were like the key people in the in the labor movement kind of getting action going and so forth. At least I think that's how a lot of the folks who um, had that perspective would, they would see it's a, it's really a matter of organizing. You know, part of it's coming from my perspective, but I've been bargaining straight, you know, for, you know, 20, 20 years and then bargaining before that. So like 30 years of bargaining and look at the recent strike waves. Strikes come out of bargaining. All these workers went on and strike. How many, how many organizers do you think they really had like out in these shitty unions, you know, telling the workers, hey, you have to go out on strike. I, I mean, I'll be surprised if, if they did anything to you know, encourage people to vote these contracts down and vote on strike. I mean, maybe some of them did, but, you know, we're talking about like the UAW, the, you know, some of these unions that were, you know, fairly conservative, IATSE and so forth. So I don't think it was really kind of staff organizers leading that, but what it was, was demands coming from the bargaining table. It's really the class struggle, which is what's propelling it forward. And my experience is that that's my experience because I, I have lots of conversations about taking strike votes and how do we move things forward. And everyone's worried like, oh, we don't get the workers organized and, and you know, we haven't talked to everybody and this and that. And that's why I hate that Jay McAvoy stuff. It's not like a linear process. I tell people it's like a it's like something's in the air. I always say like once you start talking about striking and you put out your demands, like things crystallize and, and like within the workforce you know, labor and management, you know, they, they divide from each other and the workers start talking to each other and it catches on like a wildfire. And that's how we get like 97% strike votes. It's not because we have someone going department by department, you know, talking to people. So I, so I think, you know, back to the bigger question is, I, I think the strike wave kind of propels from, you know, sort of the basic needs of workers in the class struggle. But, you know, the reason and and I've never had a problem like any place I've ever been getting people fired up. And that's never been the problem. The problem is having a strategy that makes sense and that people are comfortable with and, and that they feel that they have a chance of victory and they're, they're not going to get crushed and so forth. But people being ready to go into battle, that, that it's inherent in the employment relationship. It's just It's just a question of having the right, you know, sort of strategy. And that's why you see more going on now, because people are more comfortable that they're not going to be permanently replaced, you know, so I think it's kind of latent. Just thinking about your response to that, you know, if we just accept strikes emerge 
around bargaining issues and being able to agitate workers around the insufficient demands and insufficient gains in bargaining. That actually kind of is concerning to me because what I see more often than not is labor liberals that control existing unions, existing mainstream unions. Once you get a strike authorization, more than not, you get this like midnight hour tentative agreement that's not worth a damn. And that 97% strike authorization vote just goes nowhere. So it always seems like you get like up to the inch of being able to go on strike, but then it gets called off. So I, I don't know. I guess I just want to express like my immediate knee jerk reaction to that analysis makes me like more concerned about the prospects for class struggle unionism. Well, I mean, that's why it can't be divorced from, which is what I think a lot of people have tried to do. You know, a, a lot of people have made it about just organizing techniques or about, you know, kind of how to or this or that. But at the end of the day, the vast majority of unions suck. You know, there's lazy staff who don't really want to get in a fight. People are timid because they don't they don't want to go to war. Um, they don't share information with the membership so that they can actually make an informed decision. Look at this recent strike wave. I mean, I it's somewhat appalling. And, you know, the workers were able to basically go on in, in most of the situations, not all of them, because there's been some good unions in there. But in a lot of the situations, they've been going on strike in spite of their union leadership and, you know, who sort of reluctantly go out on strike because they can't get a contract through any other way. And then just immediately try and put some shitty offer on the table. You know, I think the Kellogg's strike I was just commenting was, I don't know enough, enough about them, but it was, you know, that seemed to me like to be a little bit different, right? Um, the other ones couldn't wait to put the shitty employer offer on the table and make people vote on it a couple of times and end the strike. But they were kind of like, well, we're not even going to put this up for a vote because it's it's not what we want. And I don't know like how people view this latest offer, but I do think process-wise, you know, that that was a little bit different. And, and likewise, the mine workers and the nurses in Massachusetts, you know, I think their approach is a little bit different. But a lot of these other unions, you know, it's basically, you know, you know, yeah, we'll go out on strike, but you can tell at the beginning of the strike that it's, you know, going to be pretty limited. And I think there was a real divide between the sort of noble aspirations of the workers, you know, going out on strike, like eliminating two tier. I mean, how great is that? Like these, these, you know, senior workers being willing to, you know, lose pay and their jobs even to fight for the next generation. And then you see what's actually, you know, at the bargaining table or what the, you know, what it kind of converts into, you know, which is a lot more of a limited vision. So, so to make a long story short, Part of having strikes and class struggle unionism is the longer term project we have of reshaping the workers movement, either either inside or outside the existing unions to create class struggle organizations, because by and large, we don't have them now. I did want to ask you more specifically your attitude and what you're thinking in terms of the class struggle union attitude should be around contracts, because in your book, you mentioned contracts should be considered a temporary truce with the ruling class, and that by design, all contracts include some level of compromise. But I just wanted to hear a little bit more specifically what you think about this, like what compromises are acceptable? And like temporary truces, like what do we think, you know, because in the existing contract, what we have is they enshrine labor peace. So you could call that a temporary truce, but they go for like four or five years on average. They, you know, completely come in and soften any agitation that's happening in the workplace until the next round of negotiations. They seem to work really as a repressive instrument today. 
And if we're still thinking about contract unionism or how contracts fit into class struggle unions, I just want to know a little bit more specifically, like what you think our attitude and embrace of contracts should be. Like, how far should we go with this? Yeah. And just to kind of step back a second, I mean, when I wrote the book, you know, I kind of try and lay out what I believe are class struggle principles. But then I also try and lay out what I think are some of the different viewpoints of class struggle unions, because I don't presume just because I think one way, I think there's people within the class struggle trend who don't believe we should have no strike clauses or maybe even contracts. There's people who don't think we should work within existing unions. So if I sound like a little bit you know, equivocal on some of this stuff, I'm trying to be fair to everybody and their views. I, you know, I have my particular views on contractualism and stuff. And, you know, I think I differ. I, I've got this article I'll never finish, but on Staten Land, nutpicker unionism. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, there was this view that developed in the, the Staten Land view, you know, that like the CIO unionism and having these national contracts was a bad thing and it was imposed from above and so forth. But, you know, I, th- I think that's largely incorrect. Um, because there was this bubbling in the in in the plants and so forth, and people fought for it and wanted national unionism because you needed it to take on national corporations. And likewise, we can have a position where we're against contracts, but on the other hand, you know, the reality is if you're trying to get you know some concessions from employers, you know, going way back into the 1800s, you know, they often you know veered it into contractualism, whether we liked it or not. But within there, I think there's a whole set of questions. You know, I don't believe that. I think we we fight for shorter term contracts rather than longer term contracts. You know, we fight for provisions, you know, that are good for us, the right to strike over grievances, all this stuff. It's hard to get because we're weak as a movement, but those are the types of things that we can fight for. I think we have to fight to break through this single plant bargaining and all of that, you know, so there's a lot of stuff we do. But on the other hand, I think people underestimate the sort of power that workers had in the 1950s through the early 70s, you know, where they were basically able to run these plants a lot of place, not run them, but they were able to like have their work quotas in pretty much almost every industry, even under a contract. And once they got done for the day, their allotment of work, you know, the guy across the street, uh, Mr. Pudlick, he would come home every day and then like at 11, 30, 12. And then at 2.30, he'd leave to go punch out. But, you know, I think that was kind of common. So I don't think just because you have a contract means that, you know, sort of the struggle goes away. And and that was, I think, in the book, the reference, you know, to some of the academic studies on the difference um, between the left-led unions and the business unions. And that's like Tony Gilpin's book, which I talk about, The, the Long Deep Grudge, which I, I thought was an excellent book, kind of talks about even within this framework of contractualism, what's a class struggle approach and what's not? First of all, I, I have to hear about nut picker unionism. Is that what you said? I need to hear, because I bet, I suspect that we share criticisms of Stotland. And like, of course, Alex and I are wobblies. You know, we're going to, we take sort of a more radical line on some things, but like, there's so much overlap in our criticism of things like the organizing model, like certain aspects of Stotland solidarity unionism. But can I hear like a little teaser of that article that you still haven't finished writing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I should do is I should send it to you to see if you want to publish it because I've had it sitting around forever. But basically, the core contention that Stotland put up is that 
you know, that there was this sort of different path for the labor movement, a sort of alternate history. And it's kind of this localism approach. He basically views it like, you know, the rise of the CIO was a bad thing and that it was imposed from above. And, you know, I call it nutpicker unionism because one of the books, uh, Ratchcliffe, I think, edited it, Peter, who's a friend of mine, but, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, the nutpicker union talking about them. But all of these, you know, organizations didn't survive or, or a lot of them morphed into CIO unionism because to take on national corporations, people wanted national unions. I think it kind of more, you know, kind of ties into what I was just saying. I think it really, th- that approach is an uneconomic approach and it really, you know, downplays the accomplishments that were made by, by having national uh, unions. So, for example, the, you know, there's a, you know, sort of analysis about what happened with the Hormel strike uh, in uh, 1934, you know. When they did a plant occupation, the the uh, Union of All Workers down in uh, Austin, Minnesota, Peter Ratchliffe has written about it, and then folks are kind of criticizing them because they they cut a deal. But all the leftists supported it. Everyone who was involved supported it at the time. The people are criticizing it now, but they said, you know, they they criticized them for going into the packing house workers. But like, what would happen if they didn't? So what they would like sit there in Hormel and you know, in Austin, Minnesota and organize a few shops, but they ended up going in and playing like a left edge, you know, and creating one of the better unions that, you know, basically lifted, you know, wages for the entire industry, and they brought in their militancy into that. So that's why I don't, I I just, I don't really agree with that approach. And I think it's influenced the generation that says basically, to basically say, well, you know, we, we can cut our little pieces here, but we can ignore, you know, sort of national corporations. So let me, because I'm not a punch puller, right? So let me put like my my critique of um, your latest, the class struggle unionism, which is that, I mean, obviously we agree that union militancy has declined significantly. And we also agree that all of these newfangled solutions from labor liberalism were not in fact the solution. In fact, they are actually oddly regressive, like worker centers are not nearly as democratic as unions proper. but. I think that the real reasons why that militancy has gone away have a lot to do with the way that unions have been legally constrained and not, for example, just weak-willed leadership taking over. Now, certainly we can point to examples of union leadership taking a more passive stance, not fighting hard enough, et cetera. But the fact that that is the overall overarching trend, I think can't, that itself shows that this can't be explained by like, well, a bunch of like weak ass people took over. And so I'm always curious, and I want to push you a little on the role of inspiration, because a lot of what your book frames as the solution is we need a different kind of inspired approach. We need to have class struggle unionism as a motivation or as a source of inspiration, whereas I'm more inclined to point to the ways that, for example, a contract strike, because you said, look, where strikes come from, they come from bargaining. I could say by the same token that strikes are only allowed to happen during bargaining. And that makes them very predictable to the employer because the employer knows when the contract is going to expire. And you have unions, you need to fight on a national level, but by that same token, you have national unions who control strike funds who are pretty reluctant to color outside of the lines for what it, for the economic 
repercussions it would have on them. So I want to push you a little on how much we just need to kind of like shake our heads and get the right inspiration again, as opposed to needing to change fundamentally where we fight and and how we fight. I mean, maybe I'm being unfair to you, but let me put that out there. No, no. Look, a couple of points. Uh, you know, first going back, uh, you know, I said I set out of bargaining, but you know, I, I, you know, I've certainly had struggle in the context of non-bargaining situations. But you know, whenever people ask me, I just had a meeting last month about, okay, what do we do here? I'm always like, well, let's get together a set of demands, and I guess that's kind of my approach. You know, maybe that's what I learned when I was doing student work way back. It's kind of like bargaining demands, but it could be demands on a supervisor or it could be demands, whatever. And then you push them. You know, maybe that's incorrect, but that that's how I do it. On, on the sort of bigger question, fundamentally, you can't have a class struggle trade union movement without developing class struggle tactics. And that's probably the key question. And when people say it's a daunting class, I, I, I talk about it a little bit in the book. You know, it's a daunting task and pretty amorphous when we say, okay, we're going to have class struggle unions. But I think the same sort of things that we need to do to have class struggle unionisms are the same sort of things we need to do to have class struggle tactics. And they actually would build class struggle unions. By that, I mean, what would a labor movement look like that not even a labor movement, but a workers movement that was capable of violating labor law look like? And how would we do that? It would be part within existing unions, but probably because they're protecting their treasuries and, you know, they might have valid reasons not to do it. It doesn't just look like it's within unions, but it's also not these foundation funded, you know, worker centers who, who where they're not going to be funded. But what would that look like? What sort of ideology would you have to have to sort of start saying it's okay to violate labor law or we're going to have to fight on the picket line or whatever we're going to need to do or blockade or do a plant occupation. A lot of that starts getting into the realm of ideology. What sort of ideas would we need to have to justify that behavior? And, you know, what sort of trend would we need to build? And I think I, I, I think it gets to the same thing because I think once you get that going, it's a radicalizing sort of a, a set of events once you get people in motion. And if you start having confrontations to say, okay, well, the scabs can't come in or we're going to pull in some community groups and try and block things out, how does that start transforming your group? I mean, I, I started, you know, way back, you know, I was, you know, because I'm from Minnesota, you know, so I was in the support group that, you know, I was like 20, 21, 22. I, I talk about the Hermel strike like it's recent, but it's like, you know, what, 25 years ago? But, you know, I mean, I just saw the sort of effect that their militancy, which wasn't, you know, didn't break completely free, but probably more free than a lot of struggles. And it really, you know, radicalized, you know, a lot of the, you know, layer of the workers there, I think became like they had the Nelson Mandela mural on their on their union hall in this little conservative town and bringing in all these speakers and left. You know what I mean? It it was anyway, I, I think that's kind of what you know, maybe an easier way to think about the whole thing. I mean, I think I largely agree with what you're saying that tactics, strategy, and imagination all kind of go together. But in thinking about tactics, I guess I wonder like, look, I see all these folks, these lefties in particular, that they got these ideas. They know how to be rabble rousers. They're like going to march on the boss, try to execute a strike. And then they go flailing about and just fuck everything up. And they, they're, they're terrible at organizing. 
But in your book, you pick on the organizing model a lot. And I wonder, don't you think we need to be able to execute these tactics successfully for them to spread and inspire more workers to take on the same set of militant tactics? Or maybe this is like your opportunity to really go full on into blasting McAlevey and company. Call me old school, but, you know, I guess I'm of the, uh, you know, the old quote, uh, once political line is set, organization determines everything, you know, meaning that organization's important. But what we've had is we've had all this focus on organizing and organizing techniques for, especially for the last decade or so, I'd say, you know, and it, it's really been kind of the, the, the thing. But if you're organizing within a fucked up system and you don't really have, you know, a, a real chance of victory, and you can organize all you want, but the reason you need all these techniques is because you, you don't really have a, a strategy that makes sense. So people give me shit because I, and I, and even, you know, like folks I work with, you know, cause I, you know, I, I, I probably downplay the organizing too much, you know, but it, cause it's important. Like we need pickets, we need this, we need people out there. So organize, we need to talk to people. People need to be looped in. So organizing's good, but I want to kind of just and I don't know if you guys picked this up, but, you know, I, I think when I talked about organizing in the book, I talk about sort of a difference between, you know, sort of how the 70s activists would have looked at it and how people might look at the role of the organizer today. And, and that certainly was me when I went into the labor movement after, you know, I come from a working class background, but I, you know, went to college, University of Minnesota, and then after I kind of decided to get into labor and and that, you know, as an already uh, formed radical, you know, and I don't think I like saw or I don't know if people saw themselves as organizers. You know what I mean? I, I, I saw that I, I think people saw themselves as joining a movement or maybe oppositionists or, you know, or kind of uh, but like this idea that we, we were the organizers and that was really our role. I thought it was, you know, more like, OK, let's integrate into the union and then let's try and you know, get some reform stuff going and this and that, I guess that's organizing, but, I, but I guess it's, I think that's just like a different framework than, than like this, you know, Oh, I'm the organizer and maybe I'm wrong in mischaracterizing it. Yeah, no. And I mean, it's, it's funny because like Alex and I are organizers, yeah. you're a negotiator. We're having a little bit of a sort of chauvinistic, <laughs> like we can all admit that and laugh at it. But like, I think that where I agree with you is Unions became massively staff dependent, and I'm, I'm running a, a series of articles right now, written by a labor historian about the origins of paid staff within unions. And like the punchline from the beginning is, this is a terrible thing. <laughs> but like I'm probably taking a harder line on that than most. And certainly, the organizing model was very heavily reliant on staff. This is exactly my criticism of Jane McAlevey's approach. I think it's heavily reliant on staff. And I think that we agree that we need a working class that is organizing itself. We don't need external saviors, whatever, to, to save the left. We need a, left, a, a working class that's organizing itself. But yeah, I guess where I'd push back is the reality is that most contexts that I've been close to, when it comes, the first thing that most workers will say is that they don't want to go out on strike. And that's an understandable thing, right? Because you lose pay and that's usually the first, second, and third reason. But also there's all kinds of reasons why you don't necessarily want to be on strike. And yet it's important and workers do do it and they pull it off and they make gains because of it. And so 
I think that in some ways we agree and we're just talking past each other, but there's also some disagreement probably between our positions too. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a difference in terms of, well, maybe not with you, but there's certainly a trend that was the key thing is teaching people how to organize. And, you know, so like the secrets of the successful organizer, the sort of more recent approach within labor notes, as opposed to, you know, 20, 25 years ago, you know, it was concessions and how to beat them. You can kind of look at the titles of the book and kind of see the 80s book Jane Slaughter was doing were against team concept and then concessions and how to beat them. They were all kind of like political, organizational, you know, they were tools to organize workers, but they were also like a challenge to the sort of dominant sort of ideas within the labor movement, you know, and it kind of was forming as a left pole. And then you see, you know, more troublemakers handbook, and then you end up with the secrets of successful organization. I mean, I like labor notes. I'm a friend of them, but I'm just saying it kind of tracks the sort of trend that happened within the bigger, you know, within the labor left in general. And then you get the popularity of this Jane McAuley stuff. The ultimate structure test. I mean, exact opposite of anything I ever experienced, you know? And it was actually kind of like, I remember I had some nurses uh, I was working with and I had this hack lawyer from the outside saying, oh, you know, you can't take a strike vote. You haven't done X, Y, and Z. I'm like, well, the nurses want to fucking strike. So we're going to take a strike vote, you know? So it's kind of, but that, but that was kind of, that was kind of like a, you know, what I saw as a fairly, you know, sort of conservative approach that the staff are going to be the gatekeepers. And the problem with it is it didn't even accurately describe what was going on with the teacher struggles and what actually, you know, led to the strike in, in Los Angeles. I mean, the strike in Los Angeles didn't happen because of a, of, of, you know, some structure test and some good organizing, you know, it was, it was like part of a, a political trend within the and reform trend within the teachers unions, tracing back to the Chicago teachers and flowing through the red strike revolt, which is basically rejecting, you know, decades of class collaborationism and within the teachers union to basically uh, suck up to these democratic parties and to, and to focus all your effort into democratic party politics and then you get the Chicago teachers bursting through that and fighting a Democratic mayor and, you know, having a whole set of practices, you know. So that's what really led to the, the, the and, and then that starts sweeping across the country, the reform movement, but reform movement tied into a different, you know, sort of project, right? So, but then, you know, these, these labor liberals come in and they try and reduce everything we used to call it back in my day, the battle for summation, you know, like after a struggle, they would try and define it. And that was always, I mean, I come out of a different particular political trend, you know, and that was always like, okay, so after you, you know, have this big fight on campus with the CIA, then you all sit in a big circle and you talk about everybody and you try and convince everybody about what just happened. (laughs) So that's kind of what they do is they come in there and say, oh no, it's all about bargaining for the common good. Well, Part of it was, but it was also about like saying, screw you to, you know, the National Teachers Union and and their 20-year project of basically being tied into the Democratic Party and refusing to fight. I think it's really interesting what you say, because I can definitely see where this emphasis on organizing and organizing skill sets directly leads to the increase of professional staff organizers. Like unions are already convinced to the idea that they need to staff up, 
drive their unionism through staff. And I can see how the two are tied together. And I kind of wanted to just focus a little bit more on the question of staff with you, because one of my favorite lines in your book is not even very long, but it's just you discuss the role that paid staff should have in class struggle unions, kind of the pros and cons of each approach. But you say, like, clearly, we can't be driven by staff because I'm going to paraphrase what you said. If you never had a real job and you don't know what it's like to be oppressed by some dumb shit supervisor and have to obey stupid work rules, you have no business leading workers to struggle. And so with that in mind, I was kind of hoping that maybe you can like elaborate a little bit more on your own personal opinion on staff. Like, what roles should staff have in unions? How do you place limits on staff? And, you know, like Mary and I were wobblies. So I sometimes think I bend the stick back a little too far on saying, fuck staff in general. And yet we're, we're also both staff. Yeah, it's online. So easy for me to say, I guess, when I'm already in. Look, at, I, I think I, I thought I took like a, on the one hand, on the other hand, which I know you, you uh, uh, had some critique of, but on the one hand, you know, I, I just, I think that ultimately we're not going to build class struggle unions primarily from the staff role. Within the existing unions, you know, we can send another generation in to be staffers, but, you know, you, you are what you eat. And at the end of the day, people will probably, you know, over the course of time, change more themselves than they'll change the unions, you know? And, you know, the young folks who want to get involved in the labor movement, I think, go be a worker, do some of that. You know, I did it. I think you learn a lot that way. But on the other hand, I, I you know, the, the sort of rank and fileism, I kind of, I, you know, I do have a critique of that that I talk about is that, you know, in the 70s, you know, whole generation, you know, thousands of them go into the workplaces uh, of these radicals. And I have a fonder view of that period. It was before my time, but, you know, a lot of the folks who write about it or who came out of it, who stayed in the labor movement are like traumatized, like all they did, they act like all they were were sectarian and fighting each other and putting out pamphlets, but, but they also helped lead a lot of strikes and, you know, whatever, I mean, reform movements and stuff. But I think a lot of them didn't stick with it, right? So, and, and a lot of it is if you go in and you become a worker in a particular plant, if you don't have a broader vision, then, and I've done it, you know, it's like, it becomes very conservatizing. Your little world is that hospital, you know? And then after a course of time, you do that for five, 10 years, it's like, okay, well, what am I doing with my life? I'm, I'm one of my old uh, left uh, friends way back, or he was older than me, but, uh, you know, he said, I woke up one morning and realized I was dedicating my life to the more equitable distribution of overtime like you're spending all your time and all your effort in, in one little area. So having a staff job, you know, it's a reality. If we want to, if we want to transform the unions, you know, a lot of times you're going to have a lot more influence in a staff position than you can if, if you're one worker in one particular plant. So I, I, I think I, what I tried to do in the book is if you are a staffer, what are some sort of sets of ideas that, you, you know, you should have about, what are your practices you have? You know, so like as a bargainer, I always, I teach people when I teach our negotiations training and stuff, you know, the staff never talks to management by themselves. It's just against the rules. You always, you know, we might have small group discussions, but it's always the, you know, member leader, the the president or whoever it's working, uh, you know, working in the class, you know, and, and as the actual member, I, I, I think like it's fine to have staff. I'm staff. 
and you can play a great role. But, um, you know, I don't see myself as the leader of the, you know, flight attendants or the leader of every, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm there to support them in their role. And I'm in, I'm there to support worker decision-making and make sure that I don't it substitute my ideas because in bargaining, it's really easy. Like you don't know what, like, like there'll be these issues that really, you know, sort of get folks going, you know, cleaning the trash or whatever. And to me, it's like, you know, if you don't work it, you don't know it, you know, but, the, but to the folks, it's like, hell no, we're not doing that, but it ties into their identity or what their job is or what they see their job. And you have to be willing to like step way the hell back and, and just say, okay, you know, I'm not you. And if you guys think it's important, I can't just poo poo it. And I have to, I have to articulate your views or I have to help you articulate them. But, but no, I, I, look, it's, it, 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 and it's a reality. And, you know, we're not, you know, we just need to kind of think about what our roles are as staff. And if you're a staff or a shitty union, then you got to think, well, is this the best job? Or, or, you know, is it more strategic to kind of figure out a union where some shit's going on and we can get together and, and, and we can do it. But I've been in many situations where from a staff perspective, we, you know, we've been able to, you know, kind of push things and get a lot of struggle going. I mean, this brings up another interesting question, I think, and I don't have an answer to this which is why I want to ask it, which is what do you do with the issue of having staff that is more radical than the membership? Because this is something I've seen happening now too, where let's say leftists do want to uh, pitch in and help the labor movement by becoming staff, or they come to it via socialist ideals or what have you. And then you find that they're actually a lot more conservative than the members. That's kind of an interesting problem because on the one hand, people are a lot of people are saying that the solution that we need is, you know, much more uh, kind of left or progressive or militant thinking union staff and union leadership. And on the other hand, for that matter, you can have this problem at a union leadership level too, where somebody gets elected who's quite left leaning, and the membership, you know, bristles at that. What 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 are your thoughts on this? I think there's two levels to it. Um, and one, I know you would appreciate from your writings, you know, wh what is leftism? You know, some people think leftism is, you know, I'm going to have my political views out there. Some, some of the people who may be in staff may think that they may think that people are conservative because they're not agreeing with their particular views, as opposed to I know you've written about kind of leftist organizing and some of the shops and stuff and how they're not always the best organizers. That's why I'm saying that. You know, so I think that's a piece of it. But then I think it's also just because people are rank and file, we think of the bureaucracy as kind of the, as being the, you know, the sort of paid staffers. But in a lot of the unions, there's a whole layer of kind of people who've been brought up in the local union and they've been taught. And some of them may be, stewards or activists for 20, 30 years, right? And they've adopted this whole sort of mindset of business unionism. And I'm not trying to be pejorative, but I'm just saying that there's customs and ways of doing stuff. And then you come in there as a staffer and say, oh, oh no, hell no, we need to do it this way. And, you know, I guess so then sometimes it's a question of is, is it this layer who's like, you know, uh, objecting to it? Or what would the members think? And where, where is it really coming from? And do you have the right issues and stuff that, that you know, to kind of move people forward through struggle, you know? And and you'll hear that a lot. Have you read any of the British stuff on uh, like Darlington and all those guys? Because when I was researching my book, there's this whole, 
there's way more developed analysis from the 80s and 90s of like these sort of leftists who went into academia and then they're like they're kind of analyzing that very question like i think this upchurch guy and anyway so they 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 had some interesting stuff and this whole debate about you know where the left leaders because they had a bigger sort of strata you know over in, in great britain and it kind of focused on that question thinking about the viewpoints of membership there is in your book a lot of attention paid to the internal democracy of unions and how that's really important for class struggle unionism and i guess this is kind of a cheap question but i wonder because in your book you have a schematic of what's a business union what's a labor liberal and what's a class struggle union and one of the unions you name as a business union is the UAW. And now the UAW apparently has uh, direct elections of uh, leadership. So are they no longer a business union? Like, what's your take on this, this uh, transformation of the UAW? No, I mean, I, I, I think they'll, you know, they'll, they'll have an opportunity to kind of open things up more. But I, I think the, you know, business union is more of a kind of overarching, you know, sort of ideology. and. You know, I think we have very few on the class struggle union, you know, as opposed to, you know, think back, you know, you come you come out or think of other countries, but you come out of the 1930s and, you know, you've got a good chunk of the uh, labor movement on, uh, you know, under the top level folks who are in or close to the Communist Party. And that's hundreds of thousands, you know, so there's basically millions of workers involved in it. So anyway, I think it, you know, sort of the democracy movement's important, but I don't think that'll just transform it any more than the Teamsters elections, you know, converse them into, you know, they may be a little bit more militant business unions. Well, I see we're coming up to an hour here discussing, and I guess um, it'd probably be good to wrap this up. And maybe this isn't the best question to end on, but I want to ask it because I noticed in your book, there are many instances, it's not that big of a deal, but it's still, I got to ask the question, where you talk about class struggle unions and you keep saying the historical IWW, (laughs) not the contemporary IWW. And I just want to hear your thoughts. Like, this is your opportunity to, you don't have to put on the gloves here. You can say like what you think, like, what's your take on the, is the contemporary IWW not a class struggle union or what's your take on it? Well, no. So, it's like talking about the CP in the 1930s versus the CP in the 80s when they all they do is support Democrats, right? So they're not the same thing. So I, I think the historic IWW was like of a historic character. You know what I mean? They, they they played a major role, but it's not the same period in an organization. So if I'm talking about them, I think I mentioned fondly the current IWW in some places, but I, th- I think the IWW, you know, it. I, I think there's like, you guys know better than me, but I think there's like a variety of views within the IWW and, and different approaches and tendencies. And some of them are wrong. Yeah, some are wrong, some are right, some are better, some are worse. But I think there's there's a chunk of folks who use the NLRB more than, or you seem to believe in it more than, you know, like a lot of people have been around a while, you know. But, but then again, there's a lot of folks who are seeking out creative and new ways and believe in challenging capital and business unionism. So I, by, by referring to the historic IWW, I, I certainly don't mean to, uh, you know, diss the current, but I think that there's uh, multiple tendencies and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a friend of the current IWW and, uh, but I think, I, I think there's folks in there who can, 
you know, sort of benefit from a study of class struggle unionism like like we all can. Absolutely. Agreed. Okay. <laughs> I think with that, this has been a labor wave of a Wobcast, right? Uh, I really like to thank you, Joe, for taking the time. And people should definitely check out your book, Class Struggle Unionism, when it hits the bookshelves. All right. Thanks, Alex and uh, Marianne.